0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to FebRal, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial stewardship. I'm Sarah Dong, your host. Let's welcome our co-host, Dr. Nahid Hiramandi.
1: Hi, I'm Nahid Hiramandi, and I'm super excited to be here.
0: Nahid is currently a third-year pediatric ID fellow at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. She did her residency at Phoenix Children's Hospital, and she is currently applying for jobs. Our guest discussing today is Dr. Kristen Valencia-Duray.
2: Hi, I'm Kristen Valencia-Duray, and I am also super excited to be here.
0: Kristen is an assistant professor and pediatric ID attending at Baylor College of Medicine, Texas Children's Hospital. She completed her residency at Nationwide Children's, where we were actually co-residents, and followed that by a fellowship in pediatric ID at Baylor and Texas Children's. Before we jump into the case, we always start uh, with our culture question. Febrile is everyone's favorite culture podcast, so I like to ask you to share a little piece of culture, something that brings you happiness or joy recently. Uh, Nahid, maybe I'll start with you.
1: Yeah, so I consider myself an avid reader, and residency definitely prevented me from keeping up to date with all my favorite books, so I during fellowship, I made it a goal to read at least one book per month, um, and people think it's super nerdy, but I still go to the public library and just stroll through the, the bookshelves and pick out a book that I like, um, and I am obsessed with the book, The Overstory, which is by Richard Powers. It's about trees and environmental activism. <laughs> So, if you have that kind of interest, I would recommend it. It's a great read.
0: That's cool. Well, I'm impressed that you can read a book a month. So, on average, <laughs> power to you. On yeah, average. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Some months there are zero, and then other I make it up for in other months.
0: I tried it for like a section of fellowship, and, <laughs> and then I was not very successful. <laughs> I'm going to get back into it. What about you, Kristen? Um, I absolutely love music,
2: and so I will say my guilty pleasure is that I am totally a Swiftie, and so getting to go to the Taylor Swift Heiress Tour was absolutely incredible and brought me so much joy.
0: <laughs> you're not the first Swiftie. I'm in full support.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm like uh, Deb Palazzi is going to listen to this and be like, "Oh, Kristen, you're such a millennial." <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I'll throw it over to you. You're in charge to tell us about the case today.
1: Yeah. So we're starting off with this patient who is an adolescent male with cystic fibrosis who is status post bilateral lung transplant four months prior. He is CMV donor positive recipient negative and also EBV donor positive recipient negative. Um, So he presents to pulmonology clinic with fever and a new dry cough for the last seven days. He says that he's had one episode of bloody sputum with a notable decrease in his pulmonary function tests today. Um, So in clinic, they do a chest X-ray, which shows bilateral worsening of interstitial lung markings when compared to a prior chest X-ray. So what else would you like to know?
2: So I think for cases like this, it's really important to do a full review of systems. So I would just kind of start head to toe
1: and ask if he's had any other symptoms that are either new or ongoing. So he's had fatigue, a headache, with a report of vision change, no neck stiffness, no abdominal pain, no rash, and no joint pain. Uh, The vision concern um, or the vision change is a concern for me. Can you describe that? So he describes it as blurry vision with on and off loss of central vision or seeing black in the middle. Um, This is present in both of his eyes and he's never had vision problems in the past and there's no pain in either eye and no discharge or redness. Okay,
2: so that is definitely worrisome, Um, but let me ask a few more questions and then we'll circle back to the vision changes. Can you tell me about any sick contacts he might have? So no sick contacts that he is aware of. Okay, great. What about, is he taking any medications and is there any concerns about compliance with those?
1: So at the time of his transplant, he received ATG for induction. He was started on tacrolimus, mycophenolate, and prednisone for maintenance immunosuppression. His infectious prophylaxis consists of trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole for PJP prophylaxis. Um, and he takes Cyclovir for CMV prophylaxis. And then you had asked about compliance and his parents say that they are pretty good with taking all of his medications. The patient says he hasn't skipped any doses and the family hasn't had any barriers to access any of his meds. Okay, great.
2: Um, what about any pertinent exposure history such as like where he lives, any animal contacts, those sorts of
1: things? Yeah, so he lives in the southeast United States. In terms of animals, he has a pet dog at home that he's had for several years now. He previously had contact with cattle and horses on a ranch and did go on a quail hunting trip, but he denies touching or handling the birds and denies any tick bites or any other insect bites. Okay. Um, So based on those possible
2: sources of infection, here's some just initial thoughts on the differential. So horses can carry rhodococcus, and rhodococcus is a gram-positive bacteria that exists in soil and can be a cause of pneumonia in horses. And our immunocompromised patients um, who get this, they're at risk of both pulmonary and disseminated infection. And pulmonary infections due to rhodococcus typically manifest as cough, high fevers, chest pain, and hemoptysis. Chlamydia stidicae is a pathogen that I'll associate with birds, and that can have an atypical, usually bilateral pneumonia. Cryptococcus is a fungus that lives in the soil or environment and can be found in bird droppings. And then with the cattle exposure, I think about Mycobacteria bovis or Q fever. Leptospirosis can be transmitted from cattle or from horses, primarily via contact with animal urine. Has he been around any bodies of water? No, no known exposure to bodies of water, but why do you ask? Bodies of freshwater contaminated with animal urine can be a mode of transmission for leptospira, which are
1: spiral-shaped bacteria. Interesting. So what would, that, what would leptospirosis look like in an immunocompromised host? So really in any host,
2: it can manifest as fever, gastrointestinal symptoms, jaundice, and can actually even progress to shock. Um, does he have an indoor or outdoor dog? So I asked because outdoor dogs are more likely to have fleas, which can transmit disease to humans. Um, is the dog up to date on their vaccines? So specifically, have they received any live
1: vaccines? Any scratches or bites from the dog, and does he collect the animal species? All good questions. So his dog likes to be both indoors and outdoors. So I would definitely worry about diseases transmitted by fleas, such as murine typhus, which we see quite a bit of here in the South. Um, the dog is up to date on vaccines. Um, no recent live vaccines, and no reported dog bites or scratches. And the patient says he does not clean up um, the dog poop.
2: Okay, perfect. Um, I specifically asked about recent vaccines because live vaccines that dogs receive, such as the Bordetella bronchiseptica vaccine, which prevents kennel cough, can actually be transmitted to our immunocompromised pet owners. And they can present with the symptoms of essentially kennel cough. And so that could have been pretty consistent with how our patient presented.
1: That's super interesting, and I feel like a really great discussion of a lot of bacterial infections. Um, Anything fungal going on in your mind right now? So I had
2: mentioned my concern for Cryptococcus given the bird exposure, and then with him living in the southeast, I would worry about histoplasmosis, which can manifest as both pulmonary
1: or disseminated disease.
2: Um, Has he traveled to the southwest or the California Valley?
1: No, no travel outside of being in Southeast U.S. Okay, great. So
2: I wouldn't add coccy to my deferential.
1: Loving all of this discussion. Um, So unless you have any other questions, we could keep going. Um, How would you first approach management of this patient?
2: I am concerned because he's only four months out from his bilateral lung transplant, making his overall degree of immunosuppression high. So I think he needs to be admitted for further testing in empiric antimicrobials.
1: And what diagnostic testing would you start with?
2: Personally, I would start with a chest CT, given his respiratory symptoms and the changes seen on his x-ray. So chest CTs are going to be more sensitive when looking for things such as nodule seen and fungal infections. They can also assist the pulmonologist in deciding where to perform bronchialveolar lavage, as well as transbronchial biopsies. I would definitely have a conversation with the pulmonary team about the need for a diagnostic bronchoscopy with biopsy based on what we find on the chest CT, as well as his initial non-invasive workup. These cases can be super challenging as rejection of his lung allograft could present in a similar fashion and needs to be ruled out. In my experience, pulmonologists are actually eager to perform bronchoscopies in these patients. In addition to um, what we just talked about, I would also make sure he got adequate volume blood cultures, a CBC, CRP, procalcitonin, liver function testing, and a CMP to assess renal function. Large DNA virus infections such as CMV can present similar to this and can cause abnormalities to liver and kidney function. Kidney function can also help guide dosages of empiric antimicrobials. Sometimes in these very challenging cases where the decision to proceed with bronchoscopy or a lung biopsy is delayed, a curious or next-generation sequencing of the blood can be done to try and detect the pathogen. The key for this patient is having an early conversation with pulmonary about next steps.
1: Thank you. That was a lot of diagnostic, um, kind of keeping our differential quite broad. Um, What specific infectious diagnostic studies would you want to send given the history in this patient? Great question.
2: Um, So common things being common, his presentation could be consistent with a viral lower respiratory tract infection. So if he's going to undergo a bronchoscopy quickly, I would send a PCR for respiratory viruses, as well as atypical pathogens, things like mycoplasma, chlamydia, and bordetella from BAL fluid. However, we could also send it from a nasopharyngeal swab if a bronchoscopy is going to be delayed. His immunocompromised state also puts him at risk for Legionella pneumonia, so I would send a Legionella urine antigen test, as well as a Legionella PCR from the bronch. From both the blood and the bronchoscopy, I would send quantitative PCR testing for viruses, including large DNA viruses, such as CMV, adenovirus, and enterovirus. This would be an unusual presentation of PTLD, but I would absolutely include EBV on our differential, and send quantitative testing from whole blood. We also need to rule out potential fungal infections. So I would send a urine and serum histoplasma antigen given his location in the Southeast and the fact that antigen testing is preferred in our transplant recipients. I would also request a fungal complement fixation test which checks antibodies for endemic mycoses including coccyte, histoplasma, and blastomycosis. And then from the bronchoscopy, I would request both aerobic and anaerobic respiratory cultures, just looking for common causes of community acquired pneumonia such as staph or streptococcus pneumoniae. I would send mycobacterial cultures to allow TB as well as non-tuberculous mycobacteria. We see quite a bit of non-tuberculous mycobacteria infections in our CF community. So, I would be interested to know if this patient had had any mycobacterial infections pre transplant. We already briefly talked about his need for a comprehensive fungal infectious workup, but I will add here that he also needs a fungal culture from the bronchoscopy. Kind of along those same lines, I would send a galactomanin. So, that's an indirect marker of infections due to Aspergillus, which he is certainly at risk for. Additionally, I would send Aspergillus and zygomyces PCR. And while I know he's on PJP prophylaxis with Bactrim, I would still send a PJP PCR to rule it out in this immunocompromised host.
1: I think that's a really great differential and game plan for diagnostics. What empiric antimicrobials do you think we need to start for this patient?
2: Yeah, excellent question. So I would personally start by looking in the patient's chart to see what their typical pathogens and susceptibilities have been and cover them accordingly. So we know that our lung transplant candidates are often chronically colonized or infected before their transplant with some nasty pathogens, things such as Pseudomonas, Burkholderia sepatia complex, as well as non-tuberculous mycobacteria. These pathogens are difficult to eradicate, which leads to higher risk of recolonization and poor outcomes after
1: transplantation. And then would you continue their prophylactic trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole for the PJP, and again, cyclovir for CMV?
2: Yeah, so I would continue both of those at prophylaxis dosing while we're awaiting testing, given that our patient is so clinically stable. So luckily, your CMV PCRs have a relatively quick turnaround time, and we should have answers within 24 hours. However, if the patient were unstable and CMV were high on my differential, I would start treatment dose Foskarnit now. And the reason I would choose Foskarnit would just be due to concern for potential resistance as the patient has been compliant
1: on their valgancyclovir and prophylaxis. Got it. So before I give you some test results, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I recall that the patient came in with vision changes, which makes me concerned
2: about central nervous system pathology. And anytime I hear about lung and CNS pathology and an immunocompromised host, I absolutely have to rule out necardia. So I'd like to add a necardia PCR onto our bronchitis fluid. And then I would recommend um, an ophthalmology exam looking for retinal lesions and then a lumbar puncture to rule out meningitis or encephalitis. I would send the LP for routine studies, so glucose, protein, cell count, as well as a CSF culture, fungal culture, and viral PCRs for HSV, CMV, and enteroviruses. Then, depending on what we find, we might need
1: to consider head imaging. Okay, so while we're waiting for some of those test results, unfortunately, We learned that since admission, the patient has had progressively worsening respiratory distress and hypoxia. He ultimately required intubation and mechanical ventilation. His blood cultures are no growth at 72 hours. We found that his PJP PCR, as well as the atypical respiratory pathogen panel from the bronch are negative. The CSF and BAL bacterial cultures have no organisms isolated to date. We do know, however, that fungal and mycobacteria cultures will take some time to finalize, but so far, nothing. So, what do you do now?
2: I'm now way more worried about viral infection, so specifically cytomegalovirus or CMV, given the potential CNS, eye, as well as lung involvement. So, I think now is a good time to take a moment just to discuss the risk factors for developing CMV post-solid organ transplant. The most important risk factor for developing CMV, DNAemia and disease post-transplant are going to be the donor and recipient zero status at the time of transplantation. So more specifically, if you have a donor who is positive and a recipient who is negative, then your recipient is categorized as being high risk for CMV. And the reason for this is that transmission of donor latent virus can lead to primary CMV infection in the recipient. And this can be severe, given the lack of pre-existing CMV immunity. And if you recall, our patient that we're talking about was actually CMV high risk at the time of transplant. Another risk factor is young age, so specifically being less than a year old at time of transplant. And this is because they've had fewer opportunities for CMV exposure and will likely be recipient negative going into transplant. It should be noted that all children less than a year of age should be considered CMV negative at the time of transplant unless they've had a positive urine or blood CMV PCR, as any positive immunoglobulin is likely a maternal antibody. And additionally, young kids are more likely to get de novo CMV infection from community exposures such as daycare. Immunosuppression is another important risk factor. So studies have shown that induction with ATG is more likely to lead to CMV DNAemia and disease than induction with basiliximab. And similarly, studies have shown that maintenance immunosuppression with mycophenolate is more of a risk than using azathioprine, and that patients who are on sirolimus were actually at reduced risk of CMV versus those on comparative immunosuppressive regimen. Our patient had received induction with ATG and is receiving mycophenolate as part of his immunosuppressive regimen, which, again, gives him more risk. And then lastly, organ transplanted is the last major risk factor I think about. So your lung and small bowels are going to be at highest risk, and this is likely due to their overall levels of immunosuppression being high, as well as having a large amount of lymphoid tissue transplanted. Liver and kidney transplant patients have less risk. And just a reminder, our patient was a lung transplant recipient. So back to our patient, if he truly is compliant on his prophylaxis and it is appropriately dosed, this would be unusual timing for CMV disease. Generally, you see CMV disease in high-risk solid organ transplant recipients during the three to six months after completion of their CMV antiviral prophylaxis. So this is what we call post-prophylaxis delayed onset CMV disease. But given the unusual timing of his presentation, I would be concerned about potential resistant CMV. What did the blood and BAL PCR test show for EBV and CMV?
1: Yeah, so the CMV quantitative PCR from his plasma had greater than 6 million copies per milliliter And the BAL CMV quantitative PCR had 3.4 million copies per ml. Wowza! Okay,
2: so he definitely is going to need treatment for his disseminated CMV. And I think it's important to take a minute here to discuss the differences between CMV infection and CMV disease.
1: Yeah, what are the differences?
2: So, CMV infection or CMV DNA emia is gonna be the presence of CMV DNA and plasma, serum, or whole blood, irrespective of any symptoms. So those kids are not necessarily symptomatic. And then CMV disease is when you have CMV DNAemia that's accompanied by clinical signs and symptoms. So CMV disease is actually categorized into CMV syndrome and CMV tissue invasive disease. So CMV syndrome is a mononucleosis-like illness, which is defined as having CMV DNAemia, and then you need to have at least two of the following symptoms. So fever greater than 38 for more than two days, new or increased malaise or fatigue, leukopenia or neutropenia on two separate measurements at least 24 hours apart, greater than or equal to 5% atypical lymphocytes, thrombocytopenia, and elevation in hepatic aminotransferases to two times the upper limit of normal. Um, importantly, that last one does not count for the liver transplant recipients. And then when we're thinking about proven and probable CMV disease, so this is actual tissue invasive disease, and they're really defined based on the organ system affected. So kind of as a rule of thumb, to be proven, you must find evidence of CMV replication in tissue, and have clinical symptoms consistent with that finding. As ID physicians, we all know that tissue is usually the issue, which is where probable disease comes into play. Probable CMV disease is when you can't get tissue, but you have a case clinically consistent with CMV tissue invasive disease. For example, CMV pneumonia is defined as clinical symptoms and are signs of pneumonia. So things such as new infiltrates on imaging, hypoxia, tachypnea, and then having CMV documented in lung tissue. Whereas if you can't get lung tissue, but you can get a bronchoscopy, which demonstrates CMV and BAL fluid, then you have probable CMV pneumonia.
1: That makes perfect sense. So based on what you're saying and going through the definitions, it sounds like the patient has probable CMV pneumonitis just because we have detected the virus from the BAL fluid, but don't have lung tissue. So, so then how would you recommend treating him?
2: So the drug
1: of choice for life-threatening CMV disease is
2: intravenous ganciclovir. When starting this medication, it's always important to ensure that you have appropriately renally adjusted the dose if you need to. So do you know, does our patient have normal renal function?
1: Yes. So thankfully, he has a normal creatinine um, and no prior history of kidney dysfunction.
2: Okay, great. So I'm glad his kidneys are working well. Um, Given that he has CMV pneumonitis, we could consider the use of adjuvant CMV immunoglobulin. However, data supporting its use are limited, and we don't routinely recommend this approach It's also really important to talk to our transplant colleagues about options to decrease his immunosuppression, as we really want to optimize his immune system's ability to fight this infection. Since our patient has this degree of CMV disease, despite adequately dosed prophylaxis, I would be concerned about gancyclovir resistant CMV. So I would stop his valgancyclovir prophylaxis and start him on foskarnit. And that's because the majority of patients who are on valgancyclovir are going to develop UL97 mutations, conferring ganciclovir resistance first. Foskarnet works at the UL54 CMV DNA polymerase, as opposed to ganciclovir, whose mechanism of action is at the UL97 DNA polymerase. I would also send to CMV isolate for genotypic resistance testing, which can detect specific mutations in UL97 as well as UL54 genes. And since phoscarnate is highly nephrotoxic, I would check creatinine at least twice weekly to make sure we do not need to make dose, dose adjustments um, for a changing GFR. This seems like a good time to briefly discuss marabavir. So marabavir is FDA-approved for treatment of resistant or refractory CMV infection in both stem cell and solid organ transplant recipients, who are greater than or equal to 12 years of age, and who weigh at least 35 kilos. But very importantly, it does not cross the blood-brain barrier, so it should not be used if you have any concern for CNS or retinal disease. I know that our patient had presented with blurry vision. What does the eye exam show?
1: So the dilated eye exam revealed bilateral white, what was described as peripapillary inner retinal infiltrates, which unfortunately is consistent with CMV retinitis.
2: Okay, so I would not consider therapy with marabavir given that he has eye disease. Um, just important to know, most of the data regarding therapy for CMV retinitis is going to come from the HIV literature. Intravitreal therapy for CMV retinitis is usually used in combination with systemic therapy for patients who have site-threatening disease. So I would make a phone call to ophthalmology to discuss the need for adding intravitreal phoscarnate to his treatment regimen, and it should be given twice weekly
1: for one to four doses over a period of seven to 14 days. Got it. Um, so unfortunately, our patient's clinical status is continuing to worsen, and at this time, he's now placed on ECMO. The CMV plasma PCR, interestingly, is decreasing. In about a week into changing the antiviral regimen, the number of copies decreased in the plasma to 10,000 copies per ml, which is showing adequate response to the antiviral therapy you had recommended. Um, an important fun fact that I learned is that in a large ganciclovir and valgancyclovir treatment trial, uh, it was found that the CMV viral load had actually declined with a median half-life of around 11 days. So. This would allow them to conclude that persistent DNAemia in the first two weeks of treatment are not necessarily predictive of drug resistance. However, failure to achieve significant reduction in DNAemia beyond two weeks of therapy would be concerning, and resistance testing should be performed at that point. Interestingly, um, the CMV resistance panel does show, as you were concerned, resistance at the UL97 site for gancyclovir. There's no resistance at the UL54 site, so it is still susceptible to both foscarnet and Sidafavir. Knowing that, how long do you recommend therapy for his CMV disease?
2: Great question. Um, so I would monitor this patient with weekly quantitative CMV PCRs, and I would continue his treatment until all clinical signs and symptoms have resolved and the patients had at least two negative weekly quantitative CMV PCRs. Also, all patients who have CMV disease should receive a minimum of two weeks of therapy. So our patient is very sick. I think he will require more than that. Importantly, if he were to improve, and he came off ECMO, he was on room air, et etc., but he continued to have CMV DNAemia, I would at that point consider transition to oral valganciclovir review to complete his course.
1: Do you ever think about using secondary prophylaxis for CMV after they get over their CMV disease?
2: Great question. This comes up frequently. Um, And so there have been no prospective randomized trials of secondary prophylaxis for prevention of recurrent CMV infection in solid organ transplant recipients following resolution of CMV disease. And because of that, secondary prophylaxis intended to prevent CMV relapse is not routinely recommended, given the potential toxicity of the antivirals we have to use. In high-risk scenarios such as this one, I monitor the patient's quantitative CMV PCR and use more of a preemptive prophylaxis approach, where if the patient develops high-level CMV DNAemia again, I'd restart therapy. It is important to know also that there's no predefined thresholds for triggering therapy, so institutions usually have defined their own local thresholds. However, our specific patient has not completed his 12 months of primary CMV prophylaxis, so in this specific instance, I would restart his primary prophylaxis after completion of therapeutic dosing.
1: Okay. Um, So despite the improvement in his CMV DNAemia, Unfortunately, the patient's overall respiratory status declines, and the family decides to withdraw life-sustaining measures and focus on comfort. The patient does ultimately die from respiratory failure. The family opted for autopsy, um, at which point there was evidence of multifocal cerebritis with rare cytomegaloviral inclusion bodies. And there were also CMV inclusions identified in both lungs, kidneys, small intestinal mucosa, in addition to the brain.
2: This is such a tragic and challenging case. Do you think we can quickly summarize some of the learning points you took away?
1: Absolutely, because I feel like there was a ton I learned from. Um, So to start, I learned the importance of an early bronch in lung transplant patients with respiratory symptoms and declining pulmonary function tests, just because that's going to help you differentiate between rejection and infection and uh, provide the appropriate therapy depending on what it is. Um, I appreciated going through the risk factors for developing CMV post-transplant, including just what their risk status is, the age, as well as um, at what point they were transplanted, their immunosuppressive regimen, as well as what organ is transplanted. Um, I learned that most patients will develop CMV in the three to six months after stopping their primary CMV prophylaxis. So it's super important to monitor those patients very closely. IV gancyclovir is the drug of choice for severe CMV disease, but once the patient stabilizes, you can transition to oral valgancyclovir. That all patients should be treated for CMV disease for a minimum of two weeks and until all of their signs and symptoms have resolved and they've had at least two undetectable CMV PCRs at least a week apart, and very important is that CMV resistance should be considered if a patient's CMV DNAemia is not improving after two weeks of therapy, and especially in cases where patients were on valganciclovir prophylaxis and had good compliance.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much, Nahid. It was so fun walking through this case and learning
1: with you. Thank you. Likewise.
0: Thank you again to Nahid and Kristen for joining us on Febrile today. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, where you will find the consult notes, which are written compliments of the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.